The one before whom you feel shame speaks volumes of what you value. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's a story that's told of a sharecropping couple that lived in the Great Depression. And this couple was a third generation sharecropping couple. Their father was a sharecropper and their father before them was a sharecropper. And so they knew nothing of life except the hard, meager existence to work all day from sunup to sundown, seven days a week, year round, to just merely get enough to just pay the owner of the farm. That's all they'd ever known. Furthermore, they were experiencing this in the time of the Great Depression when things were difficult anyway. And so all they knew of life was just a hard, hard existence of nothing but work and nothing extra to have ever no creature comforts whatsoever. And they became so frustrated and so discouraged with their life that they vowed that their one and only son that they had would be delivered from this form of life, from this form of being trapped in this form of life in which all you do is just work to simply pay somebody else who owns the farm that you live on. So they swore to themselves they would do whatever it took in order to provide the way for their one son to escape this cycle of poverty. Well, in those days, as it has been the case for most of human history up until recent time, the way out of a cycle of poverty was through education. Higher education today has taken on somewhat of a different dynamic, of a different purpose. But up until recently, higher education was seen by everyone as the way out of a cycle of poverty. So they determined between them that they would do whatever it took to provide the way for their son to go to college. So they began doing everything that they could. The farmer, although he worked from sunup to sundown, he took a night job at the local factory. The wife, although she also worked from sunup to sundown, she began taking in sewing and taking in ironing, taking in babysitting, whatever she could do to earn just a few extra nickels, a few extra dimes. And nickel by nickel, dime by dime, they succeeded in putting away just enough money to send their one son off to college. So he reaches the age to go off to college, and they send him down to the local college about two hours away, and they drive him down, and they get him all settled in in college, and then this new life begins for their son, this new exciting life of opportunity and new ideas and things to learn and new people to meet and a future that his parents never had. So he would diligently write home to mom and dad once or twice, sometimes three times a week. And his letters would always tell them of these exciting things that he was learning, these new people that he was meeting and what the professors were teaching him and how, oh, how bright everything looked and how grateful he was that they had made such deep sacrifices for him to be there. 
Well, as the first semester of his first year wore on, the letters began to change in content and change in tone. And the parents began picking up on things that the son, ideas that their son was now embracing that was never, they were never ideas that they would have ever embraced. He was embracing new worldviews and new perspectives on life and new perspectives on the world around him that they never would have approved of. And so then as time goes on, the letters begin to become less and less frequent until finally they stopped. Along about the second semester of his first year, the letters stopped altogether. Some time went by and the mother and the father just grew more and more worried about this. So they scraped together just enough nickels and just enough dimes to put just enough gas in the old rusted out, beat up farm truck so that they could drive down, make the two hour drive to the college and check on their son. So they do just that and they drive down to the college. They get to the campus there. They begin looking around for their son. And as they're looking around, they're asking everyone that they meet and it seems like everybody knows their son. And so they finally are told where they can find him. And so they go to that part of the campus. And as they're looking, they see their son coming across the way, walking across the campus. And here's the two parents wearing the mother, wearing her homespun dress, the only dress she had because she limited herself to one outfit of clothing in order to provide for him. The father wearing his only pair of old ragged out patched up overalls so that they could give everything to their son. And so here they are standing in their old ragged clothes with the deep creases in their face of all the hard work that they put in over the years. And they spot their son walking across the campus. He's surrounded by four or five friends. And they're just having a great old time talking with one another. And then that moment happens. The moment in which the son looks up and he recognizes his parents. And right at that moment, is a crossroads that will determine the rest of that man's life. As he looks up and he sees his parents standing there in their worn out, ragged out farm clothes. He looks to his friends all around him. And his parents recognize him and they begin waving to him. And he looks away and ignores them. In that moment, his life permanently changed because he had made the decision to be ashamed of those who had sacrificed so deeply for him to be there. He valued the opinion of his newfound friends above the opinion of those who had sacrificed their whole life for him. There's some deep morality, there's some deep ethic in that story that pertains very closely to the first verse of our passage because the first verse of our passage has to do with being wrongly ashamed, with being sinfully ashamed, not rightly ashamed, but wrongly ashamed. And this is to what Jesus now turns as he turns to this warning from verse 38. Once again, for whoever is ashamed. And if you're reading in your King James, then you'll notice that it's translated whoever shall be ashamed. That is not a future tense reference that Jesus makes. Jesus is not referring to some future event when someone will theoretically be ashamed of him as though when he returns, we will be ashamed of him then. No one will be ashamed of Jesus when he appears. No one. There will be no shame of Jesus when he appears. There will be nothing but glorifying him. There will be much shame of ourselves. And so Jesus is not referring to a future event. Rather, our English standard translates it more faithfully for whoever is ashamed. 
The shame is now in the here and now. The shame is when Christ is absent, at least bodily absence, absent. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. And so Jesus is describing a twofold shame here. Shame of the person of Jesus and shame of his words. Now we remind ourselves that when Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, he's not saying that whoever is ashamed of the things that I say, meaning those things that are recorded in the four gospels. Our doctrine of the Trinitarian Godhead tells us that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All three persons are equally God. Therefore, what any of the three persons say is equally spoken by God. And so when Jesus says, of my words, he doesn't just mean the words that literally came from his mouth. He means also the words that were written by the author of the scriptures, the Spirit. So we know that our doctrine of the Trinity tells us that Jesus is not just speaking of the words that came out of his mouth. Furthermore, our doctrine of the scriptures tell us that all scripture, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all scripture is equally breathed out by God. And so whether it was in quotation marks from Jesus's lips or in some other part of scripture by way of the spirit, whether spoken by David or spoken by Jeremiah or Paul, it's equally his words. So whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed. So this is a heavy statement that Jesus makes here. And the, the purpose of the statement is at least the purpose of feeling the weight. Jesus intends for us to feel the weight of this shame that is felt for him. Now, the New Testament historian James Brooks will tell us that when Jesus speaks of being ashamed of him, the context of Mark's readers in the first century, they would have associated that with the shame of denying him under persecution. And so there's this correlation between being ashamed of Jesus and the context of that shame being the persecution that was in existence for Mark's readers or soon to be in existence for Mark's readers. We talked about that way back at the beginning of Mark's gospel. When we, we reminded ourselves, we, we saw that Mark's readers either were experiencing the beginning of severe persecution or would, or would soon be experiencing the beginning of severe persecution. So for them to hear these words, they're correlating it with the persecution, the uh, tense pressure, the intense pressure coming upon them to deny their Lord and their Savior. And so this context proves to be a context that is particularly meaningful for us. Because let's remind ourselves of who is writing this to us. Who is the human author of, who is, of these words? We know the Holy Spirit is the divine author, but the human author is Mark, Peter, both of them, right? Think back to as we began Mark's gospel. This is the account of Peter written down by Mark. And one of the things that we observed in this gospel, this gospel is unique among the four gospels in that it is written to us by two men who know experientially what it is to deny Christ publicly and be restored. Do you remember that? Both of the human authors of this gospel were those men who denied Christ publicly and then were restored after denying Christ publicly. Peter and his famous denial of, of Jesus. In fact, that's probably the most 
well-recognized event of Peter's life when Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest, I don't know that man. I don't know him. I'll be damned if I know that man. And then we remember the restoration of Peter afterwards by the Lord himself. But then you might also recall that Mark himself also was one who publicly denied Christ and did so in a way that was very memorable. As we go along a little further in Mark's gospel, we're going to come to the night of Jesus's arrest and we are going to witness that in Mark's gospel, in Mark's gospel alone, there's that one little sentence about during the chaos of the arrest on that night when the soldiers were there and they were arresting Jesus and everything was chaotic and all the disciples were running. There was the one whom the soldiers tried to grab and instead of grabbing him, they grabbed the garment, the outer garment, ripped it off. He ran right out of his clothes and ran home naked. And we observed in that that almost that almost certainly is just a small little autobiographical snippet that Mark inserts in there to say, I was that man. I was that man that was so ashamed and so fearful that in my eagerness to get away, I literally ran out of my clothes. And the double shame of not only abandoning Jesus, but running home naked after doing so is like this double shame heaped upon him. But then, of course, he is restored later. Also, we couple that together with the famous disagreement between Mark and Paul and how they got at odds with one another. And Mark was again restored by Paul later on in Paul's life. And so this gospel comes to us from the pen of two men who know what it means to deny Christ publicly, visibly, and very embarrassingly and be restored later. So this is the context in which Jesus says these words, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. So as he speaks of being ashamed of him, and then he's going to say, of that one, I will be ashamed before my father. So the paradox comes to us in in just simply asking ourselves, how could the Son of Man, how could God incarnate feel shame? Because it's not logical for us to regard the Son of God, the maker and creator of all things, to himself feel shame. And so Jesus is not speaking here of this shame as we would think of embarrassment, in terms of embarrassment. That's part of it. But the shame that he's speaking of, he's speaking in biblical terms here. And when we think in in biblical terms of shame, we should equate in our minds shame with denial or shame with abandonment or shame with with, uh, rejection. And the opposite of shame, the Bible would hold out for us as that which would be acceptance or claiming, or as we sung a few minutes earlier, owning. So to own Jesus in biblical terms would to be to not be ashamed of him. To be ashamed of Jesus would be to deny him. So don't think, think less in terms of embarrassment. Oh, Jesus is just, he's just embarrassing me by the things he's saying. Think in terms of claiming ownership, outward association with, the opposite would be rejection of, not claiming, distancing myself from, denial of. Okay, so when Jesus says, of him I will be ashamed before my father, he's not saying I'll be embarrassed. What he's saying is, what he says says elsewhere in places like, uh, well, in John's gospel, when he says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. 
This, the this denial will take place before my Father. And he's not, he's not speaking of an embarrassment or a shame. He's speaking of either an acceptance, a claiming, an ownership of, or a denial of. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. So when Jesus says here, this adulterous and sinful generation, is Jesus saying that the generation in which he lived is more sinful and wicked than ours or any other generation? That's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is not saying that if you deny me in front of this most wicked of all generations, he's instead calling our attention to the stark, stunning contrast. The contrast between the two audiences. There's two audiences in the statement. There's one audience of the adulterous, sinful, wicked generation. And there's the other audience of the Father and the holy angels. Those are the two audiences. And Jesus says, before those two audiences... There is one audience in front of whom, in sight of whom, you feel shame or you deny or you reject in front of one audience. And Jesus is saying, I want you to contrast the two of these audiences. The one audience is the heavenly father, the holy father, the heavenly being, the sinless angels contrasted against the adulterous, wicked, sinful generation in which we're now living. And so Jesus says there's there's shame before them. There's shame before one or the other. Which one before which one will you feel the shame? So what Jesus is getting at is that the one before whom you feel shame speaks volumes about what you value. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's pointing this finger and saying, ask yourself this question. Do you feel shame of me before this wicked generation? Or if that's the case, then there will be shame of you before my heavenly father. So think for yourself, ponder, meditate for yourself. Do you feel shame of me and of my words before this wicked generation? Because the one before whom you feel shame speaks volumes of what you value. 